Good morning. I'm Darrell Gunter, your host for Leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM and streaming on the net at WSOU.net. I tell you, this is the month of the woman, and we are so pleased to have in our studio today Ms. Rita Henley Jensen, who is the editor-in-chief for the Women's E-News and Arabic Women's E-News. Ms. Jensen, welcome to the program. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. It's great. You know, when we, we met a few weeks ago at the uh, Women's Ventures Fund Highest Leaf Award reception, I was so moved by your passion. I had to get you on this program <laughs> to talk about some things that are very so important today, these women's issues. But before we jump into um, what the Women E-News is all about, share with our listeners uh, a bit about your background and how you have come about to uh, found this very, very important organization. Well, I have a very uh, mixed background, uh, I guess a little surprising. Uh, I, I was a teenage mother at 18, and I got married to somebody who was violent. I had a, a, a second child, left the violent marriage when I was 22. I was fortunate in that it was the 70s, and at that moment of hi- at time in history, the U.S. government and the state governments thought that they should invest in their citizens. So I was able uh, to attend Ohio State University while I was on welfare, and uh, federal daycare dollars were available to help me with the daycare and food stamps and Medicaid when I got sick or the kids got sick. So that was a very different era, and I I remain very intensely aware of the advantages I had and the advantages younger women don't have today, Um, and it's painful to me. Um, so I was able to go to college, and Columbia Graduate School of Journalism accepted me, and I moved the kids uh, to, and me to New York City, and I was able to get uh, a graduate degree from Columbia. And then I began working as a reporter in a town you may be familiar with, Patterson, New Jersey. Yes. And I loved Patterson, New Jersey. I know it's it's a very complex town, as you know, very rich in history, very rich in issues. <laughs> so I won a lot of prizes while I was working at the Patterson News as a, a reporter. And I think that that is because I, I knew so much about how real life worked. And people were able to convey to me and, and believe that I, I understood whatever the issue was. So I, I, I don't know, how, I eight awards, I think, in two years. I moved on. I, be, I continued my career as, a, as I say, a prize-winning investigative reporter until 1996. And in 1996, as you may remember or not, the federal government, uh, Bill Clinton, signed the welfare law that ended welfare as we know it. Yes. And a part of the run-up to that was a media campaign and I was so appalled at the news stories about welfare um, that I was ashamed of my profession. It was not fact-based. It was all stereotype-based. And w- back in 95 when it started, or 94, I was like, oh, well, they won't do that. That would hurt too many women and children. Well, it goes to show you. <laughs> I was like, I'm not very good at predicting the future. So uh, I was just appalled, and 
at that time I was a senior writer with the National Law Journal, and I decided not to go back to that job, but somehow figure out how to change journalism on behalf of women and girls. Well, it took a while, but I finally got a job just doing that. In 1999, I got a job at now Legal Defense and Education Fund to create a new service using the Internet covering women's issues. And if you cover welfare and poverty and violence, then you also you're connected to the lack of uh, job opportunities or sexual harassment or unfair labor laws or uh, inadequate opportunities for athletics or scholarships or and you know you just go through the so it's really women's e news you know covers the entire system of that there's a system in place that includes violence and poverty and a lot of other things, lack of scholarship opportunities, harassment on the job, job discrimination, all sorts of things that that Women's E-News covers because it's a system. But we also cover the leadership among women to change that system and to improve women's lives based on the premise, which has been proved by many, uh, that if you prove... If you improve women's lives, you improve the family's life and you improve the community's life. So that's where we emphasize our our news stories. And they're not available anywhere else. And what is your website, if you could uh, let our uh, listeners... <laughs> sure. Uh, Please come and visit us and subscribe. It's, it, it's free. It's called Women's E-News, and it's all one word, no punctuation, Women's with an S E News dot org. Yes. And it's free. Org. And it's free. And it's free. Wonderful, wonderful. And in your opinion, what are the top of all the issues that women face? And I have to uh, advise you that I have four older sisters and a mother, so I'm very <laughs> uh, sensitive uh, to women's issues. But what in your opinion are the top Four issues that women face today? Well, uh, control of their reproductive lives. As you know, I mean, and that's across the board. One, as we know, that there's a big discussion in the U.S. about contraception. At the same time, uh, homicide is a leading cause of death of pregnant women. At the same time, the U.S. has the highest maternal mortality rate among developed nations. At the same, at the same time, right? We have uh, a whole discussion about abortion, and women's health is not a, a part of that discussion. So, that's number one. The the and a lot of people use the expression reproductive justice, but I want to make that clear that that's across the board. The the right to enjoy a pregnancy, and not be afraid that you may die. And in particular in the U.S., African-American die, mothers die three to four times more often than white women. And, and, why, and why is that? Well, that's, that's a question we've been asking, pounding against the doors. In my opinion, based on my research, and people could argue with me, it's poor medical care in the hospitals. 
Uh, it's called racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that, in the New York City area, where the ratio is eight or nine times more often uh, African American women, and not Hispanic so much, uh, more than white women, but nowhere near a ratio of African American women. Um, Eighty-two percent of the mothers who died from embolism were black, and zero percent were white. And embolisms are preventable. So, so let's just start there, right? So, yes, you know, you may be arguing about contraception, but where's your focus? And your focus should be on healthy pregnancies. It's my belief. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When the mother chooses, or when the woman chooses, because that makes it healthier. Right. Right. All right. So that's number one. Uh, connected to that, of course, is violence. And uh, the level of domestic violence is, you know, endemic across the world. It's been, you know, uh, one of my jokes is that women didn't just say, okay, we'll clean up, okay? <laughs> that there, were, there, there was often an implicit, if not an explicit, threat. And that, in turn, leaves women in the Middle East behind closed walls and out of the workforce and in the United States, we know that um, women who are murdered are most often murdered by their spouse or their boyfriend. They're most at risk when they leave that relationship. That's the, the really uh, highest moment of danger, and many women don't know that. They mm-hmm. think that they're safe. So. Violence is is really important uh, issue. I think access to employment, access to employment, and by that I mean good paying jobs, uh, is a tremendous barrier to women. At and then of course, if you are taking care of a family, who take, cares for the children while you're at the job? That's a huge issue. Uh, sick time so that you can stay home and take care of yourself. And or, excuse me, I'm going to sneeze. Nope. God bless you. Sorry. <laughs> so I start over. So if you if you're on the job, who's going to take care of your kids, and how can you afford to pay for that daycare? A lot, many. Uh, I, I forget. Seventy five percent of the people working part time are women, and that means no benefits, no no health insurance, unemployment. Across the board, no benefits. Uh, the women are frozen in, out of the union jobs that pay the best, and overall they are segregated into certain job categories that are uh, pay minimally. Um, secretaries, associates, uh, cashiers, all those types of jobs tend to be par- uh, low-paid, and, and in the case of cashiers, often uh, part-time. So poverty is huge, and, and as we talked about, the welfare law took, you know, the base out from underneath women who were struggling to take care of families on, uh, by themselves. You know, if you have a single parent, there's only one person there. So um, if the person's at work, then the person's not home to fix meals or heal wounds or do whatever has to be done. 
how is that resolved? It's never discussed when we talk about poverty or when we talk about welfare or when we talk about single mothers. They should all get jobs, okay? Uh, Good-paying jobs that pay enough to pay for child care and a car to get back and forth to the job and health insurance for the family. That's never part of the discussion. So I'm very annoyed by that. <laughs> so we're at number three. We're at so, number three, <laughs> yes. And so I have to add um, uh, uh, electoral equity. I think that's uh, our parity. That's a, a new expression that basically uh, the needle hasn't moved. And we've been at 17% in the, in the House. We're at 17% in the Senate and uh, across the board in state legislatures. We're often at 17%. And 17% is better than 15%, but it's not quite enough to be a tipping point. And experts, not me, but experts say the tipping point is at 33. If you have 33% of women... In the body, can you, let's see, and are we at, we're at 33% of the Supreme Court, so we'll have to see. Um, <laughs> maybe at the Supreme Court level, we need a little more than 30, 33%. Um, but the, the, the decisions begin to change at 33%. And, you know, things like child care get attention and maternal health. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And poverty, right, <laughs> and violence. <laughs> so there, so there, you have my opinion of the top four. Okay, very good. And recently, as, as we briefly discussed uh, with the situation in regards to what's going on with women and contraception, and Rush Limbaugh and his comments, um, how have you covered this in the women's e news, and and how? Have you been able to steer and direct the conversation in the right direction? Well, uh, I, I uh, personally wrote a column that said, bring it on, Rush, you know, uh, because you're doing us a big favor. There's a presidential election coming up, and we have been covering the Republican uh, campaign against contraception since George Bush. Uh, we tracked him down before he became elected president, and it just became clear that he was not anti-abortion, that he was anti-contraception. It was clear during his administration, but unfortunately other news media did not go that far because it wasn't explicit. No one would believe, I don't think, during the Bush administration, that they were anti-contraception. That just seemed so bizarre, right, and so far uh, to the right that that other news media simply didn't cover it. They covered it, and they rarely expressed the fact that that President Bush was anti-abortion, even though he instituted, and I don't know if your audience knows, what is called the Mexico City Policy, which is in international aid, no uh, organization outside the borders of the U.S. who received U.S. funds could advocate for abortion, uh, perform abortion, and by advocate I mean change the local laws, perform abortions 
or uh, even inform their patients that abortions were available elsewhere. Mm. And that was the international gay role. People just reported that he did that and didn't really see that, you know, as, as, as really newsworthy. Uh, and I can't imagine a more important foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Now, on uh, March 6th, you did a story titled, Sounds Crazy, But This Could Be the Year of the Woman. Tell yeah. us a little bit about that story. Well, that's very exciting. Um, and again, because I'm a journalist, I get to go to press conferences and get reports and things like that. And I attended a press conference for an organization called uh, Political Parity, and it was a coalition of 50 women's organizations, which is either good news or bad news. It depends. But uh, one of the speakers pointed out that every 20 years, there's this convergence of opportunity in that the census data is out, so there's all this redistricting. And uh, there's a lot of retirements this year, so that's that's leaving a lot of open seats. And um, uh, what else? I forget. There was another aspect, but the point is that it comes around every 20 years. The last time was 1992. We all of us remember. I hope that Anita Hill was testified in 1992 that Clarence Thomas had harassed her. And Anita Hill was bullied in the Senate. Uh, Most people would say, looking back, it wasn't said at the time. And there was a whole pushback by women because Anita Hill wasn't believed. And the number of women in the U.S. Senate tripled and a whole bunch of new women entered the Congress, etc., We've continued to grow, but it's been very minute. So the real experts on this field, as I said, we're just now at 17%, and that's been like 20 years. Um, The experts are now saying because of the redistricting, because of the retirement, and because of the, the shifts in population that is recorded in the census data, that uh, there's a record number of open seats. And it's easier for women to win an open seat rather than win against an incumbent because it's tough to beat an incumbent. There's all those advantages, as your listeners know. So a record number of women have filed for office. There's all these organizations out there trying to mobilize more women to run for the state legislature, for the city council, for the PTA, whatever. And, of course, including Congress. Um, So it could be a very exciting year. Wonderful. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we are here with Ms. Rita Henley Jensen. She's the editor-in-chief of Women's E-News and Arabic Women's E-News. Their website, www.womensenews.org, womensenews.org. It is a free site, and... uh, we're so pleased to have you on the program. And uh, what we'd like to talk about next is to talk about your May 3rd event. Now, this May 3rd event, from what I understand, is that you're honoring 21 leaders. And as I was looking over your website, I found it to be quite extraordinary. Tell us about that program. 21 leaders for the 21st century is our annual gala. It's an opportunity for us to communicate 
to an, a, a large audience what it is that we do. You and I talked about the issues that women confront, but there's a lot of people out there working for change, and we think that they're newsworthy, and so by honoring them, we're creating the news, and we're also saying, look, look at the wonderful work, the leadership that is being demonstrated by these women across the globe. This year, we have somebody from Cairo who organized the trash pickers of Cairo and, you know, began to provide them education and other opportunities to earn money and et cetera, et cetera. So it's from the trash pickers. We also are honoring a woman from New Jersey. She's uh, general counsel of Prudential Financial, and what she's done is create uh, an organization of corporations who have committed to spend a certain amount of money, and they usually spend more of their legal fees on women-owned and minority-owned law firms. That's huge. We're also honoring a whole group of women who are training women to run for electoral office. One of them is Sam Bennett from Pennsylvania. Another one, of course, is from the Rutgers Leadership Institute. And... Uh, let's see, who else do we know from New Jersey? I think that's it. But um, it's really an opportunity to say, look what's out there. Look what's needed to be addressed, and look at the kind of work that's being done that you haven't heard about. Very nice. And um, how much are the tickets? The tickets are $500, and they're worth every penny (laughs) (laughs) because it's a fabulous event. At the Essex House, it's called Jemiah Essex House at 160 Central Park South in the evening of May 3rd. And so it's just a really celebratory night. And being that you are a nonprofit organization and that the women's org site is free, um, this helps support your organization, correct? Absolutely. We really count on this to keep going because we pay our reporters. Uh, and we pay our rent. <laughs> and uh, when I, I was just joking today with a staffer, that's what we do with our money. We we pay people and we pay the rent. Yes, so those yes. are the sort of the basics and the phone. But that's what that's what keeps the lights on. But also, folks, if they're not able to attend the event, they're more than welcome to make a donation to uh, Women's E News. Correct. 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 And you can do that on our website. You don't have to mail us a check. We accept checks, <laughs> but you can do it on our website, too. So let's talk about the uh, Arabic Women's E-News site. Yes. What prompted you to um, choose um, the Middle East versus South America or India, uh, for that matter? Well, in India, we have a large audience in India, and they speak English, so that wouldn't require translation. We picked Arabic because when we looked at our metrics way back in 2003, we had a large audience throughout the Middle East. It was our second largest audience after the, you know, the English-speaking nations, U.S., England, Canada, Australia. So, surprise. And we had a donor who was very interested in our doing that. And thirdly, uh, there was a, a report it came out from the UN that said if there was any way to bring peace in the Middle East, 
you would have to address the poverty of most people. And in order to do that, women would have to enter the workforce and people in the Middle East would have to leverage the power of technology more than they were doing. I'm like, hmm, women, technology, that works for us. So, so there were like three different concurrent strands of thought and events that led us to do that. And we're particularly so proud of, of it because it gives us access to news about women in the Middle East, which other than the stereotype, which is, oh, they're so oppressed, um, and the people who are in the place are so mean to them, other than the stereotype, we don't know about how they maneuver their political power or what their goals are or the their goals are and how they see things. Uh, on the other hand, we most people do not associate our, our female genital mutilation or female genital cutting with Egypt. However, at one point in the recent past, 95% of the women in Egypt had undergone that ritual. So we were the one news service that said to a member of the Islamic-based uh, party in Egypt who is now a member of parliament, so what do you think about FGM? And she comes out in support of it. Well, we put that on the Arabic site, and the Arabic site just, you know, blew up with readership because no one talks about that. People associate that with sub-Saharan Africa. No, it's it's not. It's 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 home really is Egypt. And um, that site is it maintained here in the United States, or is it maintained uh, in, uh, in one of the Arabic countries? It's maintained in Jordan, and we are developing a partnership with the Jordan Media Institute, which was founded by Princess Reem Ali, who is a former CNN reporter. So we hope to expand our relationships throughout the region. Very nice. And that when was that launched? 2003. 2003. And um, I guess you, you, you get a lot of uh, coverage in regards to folks coming to the site. Do you look at your demographics of, of where folks are looking at your uh, Arabic site from which countries? Um, I haven't recently. Uh, you know, obviously Jordan, uh, the, the nations that it's not Syria because the communication has been cut off. But before the, the current crisis, a lot, of, a lot of, from Syria, Egypt, and Morocco, and uh, with Tunisia the, as well. Right, and with the Arab Spring, which which occurred last year, um, how did, what did you focus your coverage on? The women's leadership, and they were the women were very much part of the Arabic Spring and were out there in the demonstrations and were in the rooms making uh, the strategic decisions. And that has been one of our recurring themes is, if you remember the Iranian Revolution, the women were very much part of that. And then after the uh, strict Islamists came to power, they cut them out of the, the power loop. And there's a real apprehension throughout the Middle East among the women who participated, that their political uh, futures will be very limited. Wow. 
uh, Rita, believe it or not, we are out of time. But I would like to give you 15 seconds to share whatever uh, empowering thought you would like to share with our audience about the mission and objective of the womensenews.org site. Stay informed. As somebody says, getting the word out is half the battle, and we're involved in the battle. So stay informed, forward it, tweet it, Facebook it. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, we're so uh, grateful to have Ms. Rita Henley Jensen, the editor-in-chief of the womensenews.org uh, news site, and uh, she's the editor-in-chief for the Women's E-News and Arabic Women's E-News. Rita, we want to thank you for coming on the program. Thank you for inviting me. It's been fabulous. You're very welcome. This is Darrell Gunter, your host for Leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM and streaming on the net at WSOU.net. And remember, friends, you can now download this podcast via iTunes. Go to iTunes.com and then go to the Seton Hall University site and look for the program Leadership and Miss Rita Henley Jensen. Thank you for listening. Remember, leadership begins with you. Have a great weekend.